Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me back from New York, and we are both back from Vegas. A interesting, exciting visit to the National Association of Broadcasters, NAB, if you're not familiar yes. with it. Devin, sir, what have you been up to this week since we last <laughs> talked? Uh, well, I know, right after NAB, uh, which I got a little bit uh, sick out going out of NAB, uh, I got home, I managed to recover in two days or so, and I went back out to New York for a small edit gig uh, out there where they wanted something done the day of. It's it's very unusual for me to get called out to be, hey, we want you to edit on location, but it was kind of a team-building event, and at the end of the event, they kind of wanted a cool video to show everybody how much fun they had during the event, big smiles all around, so... Uh, that's why they brought me out there. So I actually, with DJ's help, uh, bought an edit laptop just for that purpose. I mean, I've needed one for a long time. This is finally the excuse to cause me to pull the trigger. Yet uh, you managed to edit on my laptop the entire show. <laughs> well, the, the, in specs, the two laptops were relatively close to each other. Uh, the only difference is his was bigger. And Say that one was more most... time. <laughs> you bastard. Uh, but... Uh, I prefer a 14-inch laptop. I like being able to work on a plane, uh, depending on the plane, obviously. If, if you fly Spirit, you're lucky if you have enough room, you know, where your elbows don't touch each other as you try to eat your food. But the, uh, the uh, and that and DJ's laptop already had all the content we needed on it and everything else and all of his personal settings. And I didn't want to sit there and ruffle any feathers by using my own equipment. But <laughs> it was uh, – but still uh, – uh, it was. I had an absolute blast, and I finally got back here, and I'm catching up on uh, emails and everything else, and it's still been busy for me coming back here, but, uh, you know, hopefully soon I'll be back on track with making some videos and getting some stuff done. Like, DJ's been over there powering through reviews lately. I think he did, what, three review videos in a week? Uh, is that, like... Five, I think, is actually what five? I turned out this month, or this week. It's a... Uh... Basically, guys, Com- uh, there's a compared, compared to what w- once a once a month, I think. <laughs> yes, once a month. Uh, I, I've actually uh, piled a lot of stuff is piled up in the uh, studio for review, so I'm trying to knock those out as fast as they come. And I've got some more stuff uh, coming in from Small Rig and so on that uh, will be passing by my desk. Also, I've got these really interesting lights from Flap or from not from Flapjack from Photo Deox. They're called the Flapjack. Hold on, let me cut to it here. And it's this round light right here. If you guys can see this with this uh, extra camera right here. It, they're pretty nice. They're edgelet LEDs. I just did that review on the other edgelet LED, the uh, Best Light VPad 150, and the price difference compared to the quality of these two is pretty interesting. The Flapjack is uh, somewhere in the range of $240 for the bicolor version, and the VPad 150 is somewhere in the range of uh, $40 for the bicolor version. So, uh, man, they put out very similar amounts of light. I, I, you know, obviously the Flapjack's a bit brighter, but for the price difference, you could afford to buy uh, half a dozen or more of the VPad Pros versus the uh, Flapjack. So, But didn't we agree that the Flapjack was like significantly significantly brighter i mean now that you have the, both of them side by side yeah so the best light is turned all the way up right now and i'm looking at both of these cut back to my camera so you guys can see this but basically this guy is all the way up right now and uh, that's about the brightness it's putting out the flapjack on the other hand is up about three quarters to half brightness 
So that's the difference between these two. It's a, it is significantly brighter, but you could put two or three of these VPAD 150s in place of that for uh, half or less the price. Sure. I, I will say that I like the form factor, the size of the um, the long square for the best light, because uh, for me, that fits into a bag really easily while still kind of having a big area of coverage. So it's it's kind of like a nice, you know, in-between road of both, hey, I want a softbox kind of look without bringing a giant one-by-one one that doesn't fit in a photography backpack in most cases. Now, this show is going to be a little bit different from our normal show. I'm going to hit the news button right now just because I'm <laughs> familiar with that. But I think we're just basically going to cover most of what we saw at NAB, a few things we didn't manage to talk about, and a few things that we weren't as excited about, but a lot of you guys wanted to know our opinions on. So let's go ahead and move on to the news. Time for the news. The first thing is the one thing that everybody seemed to be excited about except for us, and that is the Blackmagic Video Assist 4K. This is a recorder slash monitor that will set you back around $895. The monitor will be out shortly. We were not able to really uh, play around with it much at NAB. They had it kind of behind glass for the most part. But Devin, we kind of sparked some arguments here because I was excited about that uh, Lilliput Q5 monitor that had a beautiful screen. And I was less excited about this, but many people said, why not get a recorder instead of a dedicated monitor? What do you think about that? Uh, I think in, in general, yeah, I think Blackmagic has these very competitive prices compared to uh, even just field monitors on the market. But I have seen the Video Assist 5-inch working in person. I've touched and worked with one, as well as things like the small HD monitors, which r sometimes run a lot more expensive than uh, the Video Assist does. And I have to say, like, the screen isn't fantastic. Sure, you are getting 1080p. I can pull focus on it, but it's not the brightest screen I've seen, and it doesn't have the best color and let's be honest, it's come a long way. When, if you remember, when the video assist first came out, like there was no focus peaking, there was no punch in, there was no waveforms. Uh, there was, it lacked so many features that monitors still had a lot more features in terms of what you got for actually shooting and getting the job done. Uh, since then, they've brought in zebras, they've brought in a lot of features that a lot of people have asked for, uh, triggered recording and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, but in general, I think you're losing a little bit in screen quality uh, in order to get those other features. Now, for a lot of people, I think that they care more about those features, so I can understand them wanting that. External recording is one of those things that fits into some workflows and doesn't into others as well as the ability to cross-convert between SDI and HDMI. Uh, there aren't many monitors that'll do that, though DJ's Q5 is capable of that. So that's one of those nice features, too. Though I know DJ rarely uh, delves into the SDI workflow. Uh, having those options available can really help, to you know, in case something comes up and you need to make something work. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out to a few of you that were asking why not just go with the Blackmagic Video Assist versus a monitor. Uh, the, the monitor on the Blackmagic Video Assist isn't, it isn't spectacular. And if you look at something like uh, the small HD monitor panels or that, even that new Lilliput monitor or ICANN's monitors, they have really nice screens. Uh, they yeah. put out a ton of light 
They're very bright. They have very good contrast ratios. Uh, in, in general, they have all the focus peaking nailed down. They have uh, your zebra patterns. Everything you need out of a professional monitor is there. And you do spend a little bit. I think that Q5 and Q7 are going to be in the $500 price range. So that's more expensive than the 495 I think you pay for the 5-inch video assist and not too far away from the price of the uh, Video Assist 7-inch uh, 4K version, which is 895 I believe. Uh, so you're close, but really those are monitors second and recorders first. Uh, so if you need to record and you also happen to just want something to frame with, uh, then go with the uh, Blackmagic Video Assist. But if you want to actually have a beautiful monitor that's very petite and fits into a tiny package, you know, a small HD panel or a Q5 from Lilliput or the ICANN monitors or even some of the Marshalls that were out there this year are all gorgeous monitors, but that's all they are. They're monitors. And if you want a really nice monitor, like for me, for example, I have the A7S and Devin can attest to this. The, the <laughs> back screen on this guy is horrendous. It's it's not good at all. Um, it's hard to tell if anything's in focus. It's hard to check stuff. It's just not that great. Well, and it's it's hard enough to focus a 4K sensor because keep in mind too that once you step up from 1080p to 4K, your focus needs to be that much better. It's hard enough doing 4K on a good monitor and then trying to do it on the back of an A7S II is just, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so for me personally, I just want a really sharp 1080p screen that's about five inches, small enough to fit into a, a bag and be in a tiny space. And I want a crisp, clean image with which to maybe punch in on or whatever to uh, focus stuff. And yes, I know I can punch in on the A7S screen as well, but for me, that's what I want. I don't really need an external recorder. Now, if you need ProRes or some of these other things, still the recorder wins. And if you want a good screen, and a recorder, spend a little bit more and look at the uh, Ninja or the Atomos uh, Blade or one of the other 4K products that they offer. Those are even clunkier than either of these two options that we talked about, but they do, for the most part, and Devin, you can attest to this, you saw them at the show, have beautiful Absolutely. freaking screens, right? Those they are do. gorgeous. And, and you pay for it. I mean, that's part of it is that... Um, they're still very well priced when you consider them against maybe your your top shelf like your Marshalls and stuff like that. Uh, they're still competitively priced for that, but what you're paying for is both a great monitor and a recorder. Where in the Black Magic camp, I really feel like you're paying for a recorder, and they put probably like a TFN screen or something like that in there. I. I out from the only spec I got out of it was like viewing angle and the viewing angle made me think it wasn't an IPS display that they were throwing in there it's like 45 so, degrees or something isn't it I, I I think it's a little bigger than that maybe like 60 or 80 degrees but it was narrow enough that it wasn't advertising the usual IPS which is usually somewhere around 130 to 160 maybe yeah degrees so it's one of those that makes me think that and I've seen it enough that I go the screen isn't brilliant yeah at least you got 1080p and focus peaking and things like that and the punch and you get a few features but uh, it really is a budget recording and monitor solution. So if you go with, like he's saying, like the Q5, when we saw that in person, we were both blown away by how great it looked. Uh, it depends on how you want to spend your money. And if you want the best of everything, then you get something like a Atomos or something like that where you spend a good deal of money, but you do get a brilliant looking screen and a good recorder as well. 
Uh, interestingly, we met up with uh, the small HD guy, and we're talking to him. And when he asked about what I was excited about, the Q5 was one of the first things I mentioned. I did not mean to punch <laughs> him in the face. And my comparison was actually that the monitor looked almost as good as the 501 and 502 from small HD. And that kind of uh, brought him up and made him a little bit happier. But that's that's actually what I like about it is it's small form factor and it's not quite as expensive. And the screen to me looked almost as good, if not uh, as good as the small HD offerings for the 501 and 502. Now, the 501 and 502 are definitely thinner and more petite. Oh, yeah. And they're built um, with a lot more... Uh, design thought into them that it's a cast piece of aluminum on the back and they're really solid build and, and excellent monitors but the uh, q5 was just good enough in a form factor that was reminiscent of the small rig or excuse me the small hd dp6 and dp4 models uh, which aren't you know the most uh, clever designs but were great for the time and it it's good enough for a savings of what five or six hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, something like that. I think the five hundred one's eight ninety nine, and they were expecting around a five hundred dollars price tag on the Q five, so three hundred bucks. I mean, do you need? Well, and it's it, it it's a different section of features when you compare something like the five hundred one to the Q five, because if all you care about is uh, like DJ, you care about that. A great image in a small form factor, then you're going to go with the cheaper of the two options. What the 501 does provide, and part of the reason for it being eh, 40, 30% more expensive, is the fact that one, they have a loop system. I haven't heard necessarily fantastic things about their loop system, but they do use a loop in a way that it's very small profile. It sits next to the camera very nicely. Take it from somebody who has a four inch monitor with a loop on it that takes up a lot of space next to the camera. Things like that are really great to have as well. For people who are a part of that world, uh, you can put LUTs into this monitor and flip through them and use them for shooting. And me and DJ aren't people who typically are recording log style, but if you do log every single day, having a monitor that you can put LUTs into is huge. And I think that's something else that the uh, video assist doesn't seem to have right now is an ability to pull in 2D or 3D LUTs. All right, we've beat the uh, monitor topic down <laughs> hard enough for today. Let's go ahead and move on to this thing right here. This is the Aperture DEC Lens Regain, which is basically a new version of the original Aperture uh, DEC controller. It allows you to basically mount a Canon lens to a M43 body and control the lens, but this one also has a focal reducer in it that gives you a 0.75 magnification on your lens so that you are getting close to APS-C on your GH4 body, and you also have remote control options to fire the camera, to uh, start, stop recording, to change focus points, and so on. Apparently, Devin and I walked right past this. I saw it out of the corner of my eye and thought it was last year's model and didn't even realize that they had added the focal reducer. Now, the kicker here is actually the price. This thing will set you back about $599, which is about $50 less than the cost of a speed booster uh, from Metabones. Metabones. So you're getting a 0.75 reduction as opposed to a 0.71 reduction, but you're saving 50 bucks and you're getting some extra features. Devin, what do you think about this controller? Would this be something you'd want for your uh, GH3 or GH4? 
Uh, you know what? Definitely, Super or even sexy, more right? so. The well, yeah, and the Black Magic Pocket Camera too. Because remember, I got one of those, and that always needs a speed booster. Um, if you don't want to be shooting at two hundred millimeters effectively, the what I'm curious about is that is the it, it only works with the wireless remote, right? It's not like this is going to do the autofocus through the camera body. Uh, it's electronic control, so you can uh, turn off the the uh, wireless system and just use it directly through the body. I, I believe. Okay. Now, how well how well did their last one work in terms of focus speed? Because I know Metabones has made leaps and bounds in their speed of focus on like the GH4 bodies and other bodies. But what about um, Aperture? Because I've never actually used one of their focal reducers. I think this is actually more about uh, focus control as opposed to autofocus. So mm-hmm. the unit itself will give you A, B focus points that you can change, and you can manually adjust focus uh, via the slider wheel that's on the front of the unit. It does disable the controls on... Oh, wrong camera. (laughs) (laughs) It does disable some of the controls on the camera itself. Um, I believe the iris controls are disabled Mm -hmm. when uh, this thing is turned on. So if you want to adjust your aperture, you're uh, out of luck uh, at the camera body, but you have to do it with the controller. Now, I, I could be getting this wrong because it's been a while since I've messed around with one of these, but to me, for the price... I would be using this for mostly control and filmmaking. I mean, you put a wireless monitor oh, or sure. a, a wired monitor with this, you pull focus to get your subject, and then you hit record, and you can have your camera up on a gimbal or over on a uh, small crane of some kind or, you know, hidden yeah, up in the I corner. Would, I would love to see how, how well, because that rocker looks like it's... Um, like a digital variable, like potentiometer or something like that. Like it has variable speed to it, uh, depending on how hard you push it. And if that's the case, then if this thing can move the focus both very quickly and very slowly without messing around with settings, uh, to me, that's a total winner because there's so many uses I could have for a system like that. Uh, not just creating a very cheap and affordable wireless uh, focus system for a focus puller, uh, but as well just in the usually how i rig up the camera and stuff like that i don't know this kind of replaces having a follow focus wheel on the side of your cage uh and it makes everything compact and clean because you're not even externally motorizing the focus because it's using the motors inside of the lenses which i think barring that it all works great that that's the most ideal way to do it because the motors will be quiet and you don't have to worry about powering the motors and you get like the wireless features and everything else so I'm super, super interested in this. I would love to check it out. I posted a full review of this, uh, not my review, uh, another YouTuber's review, but uh, I've got a link in the show notes so you can check that out. Uh, It's basically going through the entire adapter and uh, all the controls and all the issues that go along with that. So uh, check that out in the show notes here and uh, make sure you watch the video because it's a really interesting option if you don't want to spend the money on a speed booster. Now, another really interesting thing Devin and I came across at NAB that we didn't have time to talk about was this a five-axis gimbal. This is the Nebula 4200, and it basically incorporates a three-axis motor-controlled gimbal with a set of springs. And this was actually a pretty common occurrence at NAB this year. We saw a lot of spring-slash-motor-control systems. Uh, This one basically uses two handles with two spring controllers and then your gimbal on top of that to stabilize all five axes. The image quality on this looked really good when we were messing around with it 
at NAB, and the price is significantly better than I was expecting. Uh, $8.99, I think, was the showroom floor special, and uh, $9.99 is the standard retail price, though I've seen it a little bit cheaper than that on eBay. What do you think about 5-axis image stabilization? Does this uh, basically finish up the whole handheld gimbal system and make it uh, completely usable without any issue? Well, I mean, that's that's what Nebula is known for, right? It's the, the let's get a gimbal in the size of a handle uh, so it's easy to use. It doesn't weigh a lot. You can kind of run around with it all day and not get fatigued. Uh, so I like what they've done here, which is, of course, you have to add a little bit of weight, but putting in that spring system, uh, I probably would have liked to see more than just single springs. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you look at it like a steady cam arm, they're usually using two springs in conjunction to dampen, not just kind of absorb. Uh, but still, in this case, it worked out super effectively. I was really impressed with how smooth the shots were. And it was still light enough that I'm like, I could see myself using this all the time. I appreciate the fact that they worked on kind of building the camera up above your hands uh, because we've seen so many gimbals with that handlebar configuration that hangs the camera low. And I I hate that. And, you know, you can fl- flip a lot of them around and do other things like that. But I'm like, I don't know. I rarely need to get shots that are below people's chins. Um so it depends on what works for you and your workflow, but this guy being able to handle both uh, and seemingly seems to handle it pretty well. They had a significant amount of weight on there. I've had some of the smaller, cheaper nebulas, and I've been very disappointed by how little weight that they're able to handle. Uh, but I think they fixed a lot of that. They put 32-bit controllers in a lot of their stuff now. Um, I'm not a handheld gimbal expert, uh, but for me, like the pricing, I'm like, wow, I'm kind of liking this more than a Ronin or something similar. It's even better when they have a little bit of lens flare yeah, of on this. <laughs> what the hell? That's, I, that's, yeah, exactly. For you listening, uh, the product shots, and you can check this out in the show notes. They have a Canon 5D Mark III on the Nebula 4200, and they have a giant Shwing. lens flare coming out of the EOS label on the camera itself. <laughs> it's pretty weird, pretty strange choice. I do like the price. I do like the stabilization and the fact that it can handle larger cameras, the reversibility, all of those things make this a pretty interesting option. And I'm guessing we'll see a lot of clones of this coming out over the next year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another weird and strange item that we came across at NEB this year was actually a SSD cartridge system for CFAS cards that allowed you to plug directly in to your Ursa Mini uh, 4.6K or 4K camera. Now, if you take a look at this here, uh, this is actually from the show floor. Devin and I uh, shot a little bit of footage of this. Uh, You can see that this has a 3D printed case and I thought that was a little bit strange. So I started looking on BNH Photo, and I think, as far as I can tell, uh, the final production version here also comes with a 3D printed uh, case. You can see the 3D printing that's going on uh, right here, and that's suspect mm-hmm. via the lines. Uh, on the deal itself. And then the hard drive adapters also, if you look here, their spacers are 3D printed. So uh, this is almost, to me, uh, someone's someone's science project. Uh, We did talk to a few people that used it. It does work really well, and it looks pretty nice uh, as far as... uh, an option for longer recording without paying the super expensive prices of CFAST cards. Uh, Devin, what do you think about this adapter? Are you going to build one? 
I got yeah, I've got opinions. Um, you got opinions. The, uh, the for one thing, yeah, I think for the price, it definitely feels like the build quality is not there on the outside. I will say that I shoved SSDs in and out of it I when physically handling this, and the SSDs locked in really nice. Everything clicked well and was tight, and they explained that the... Uh, the room in the cage in the slop in the mechanics is for accompanying different thicknesses of SSDs because there isn't really necessarily a standard. We've seen a lot of SSDs come out thinner than the standard that most drives are. Well, the um, seven millimeter and the nine millimeter are fairly standard. Sure. Options. Well, yeah, a, a lot of people fit into that, but I, I could see as well that. Uh, uh, I, I've, I've seen some weird-looking SSDs that end up being a little bit thicker. I think Intel makes some extreme ones that are thicker or something like that. But uh, I digress. What Here, you're right. It seems like a lot of simple electronics because there isn't much brains to it. This is kind of the way the protocol is made so that your, com- your new f- uh, CFast 2.0 cards are really SSD. They're SATA, they're SATA 3 is really yeah, what SS- they're doing there. S- SATA is what you're yeah. using for CFast. Because so, be, previously it was PATA for the adapter for Compact Flash, right? And so here it, it's it to me this is really kind of like a gender changer for an audio cable or something like that. They are providing extra power for it. So to use a system like this, you do need to have, which is why it works well for an Ursa Mini, because most of the time you're going to throw a V mount or a gold mount onto your Ursa Mini. So getting a D tap over to power this thing is is a no brainer. But for me, just the price seems a little too much for. I don't know, the kind of box it is and everything else, it's really hard for me to justify that price knowing that I know the guts inside of it aren't going to be much more than maybe a 100 bucks at most because there isn't really brains going on. Uh, so for people who are DIY like me, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to create something like this for myself if I go forward on an Ursa Mini uh, where there's some people who are not handy with soldering. Uh, they aren't into 3D printing at their local library or stuff like that, and they're just going to end up spending $600 for this adapter. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like there could be clones of this pretty soon because this isn't complicated stuff. Well, and uh, you got to be careful, too, if you're home brewing this. Uh, there's an easy way to accidentally fry a hard drive if you hook the <laughs> that- power lead up to the wrong. That's true. Don't make this your first DIY project to try to, you know, save a couple hundred bucks. Uh, It's not worth it if you're going to start frying, you know, $200 SSDs. The other thing to note, and I talked to a shooter on the floor who was borrowing this and working with it uh, all all week at NAB. Uh, This is not necessarily compatible with all CFast applications. It depends, A, on the hatch that they use for the CFast cards. Mm -hmm. It also depends on uh, formatting techniques and some of the other things. It does work with the uh, Ursa Mini, but there are other cameras that it does not work with, and they were kind of gathering up a list of those that do and do not. So uh, this is not a solution for every CFast application, but uh, it is really interesting, and I love the fact that I could get a one terabyte SSD in there to record on as opposed to a, uh, well, 128 gig uh, CFast card for yeah. roughly the same price. You know, that's well, and what, what, it's ridiculous. Even if you don't shoot raw, you're at least going to be shooting ProRes on an Ursa Mini, right? So you're talking about gigantic files when you talk about 4K ProRes. It's obscenely huge. And so, yeah, it for me, this is the only workflow where I, I would consider that just because right now CFast is so small and so expensive. Now, before we roll on to the next thing on the news list here, a lot of people were asking questions about the rig that Devin and I were using. And so I wanted to quickly and, uh, br- well, 
I don't know if it'll be quickly. Actually, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna justify this. I'm just gonna say we're gonna talk about the camera gear that we shot on. And I've actually got this sitting right in front of me. My dog, of course, is going crazy here, trying to snuggle with me, which is very frustrating. Uh, but I've got the Sony A7S uh, Mark II right here, and you can see that we have this rigged up with a single handle. Uh, Devin and I both prefer to have the camera handle there open because it gives you all the controls and options to access the you know whatever settings you want. I've got the handle here on the side, which gives you a really nice way to just carry it around. And then we rigged this up with the K1M audio adapter right here and a couple of wireless packs. We have the Ceremonic over here on the side, and we were also using the Sennheiser G2 unit. Uh, the rig itself is fairly well balanced, pretty easy to hold on to, and most of the parts are from small rig with a NATO rail on the top and a NATO rail on the side. Uh, we also had this attached to a monopod for shooting and the monopod itself uh, made it very easy and quick to just run around and set up, shoot something really quick, and then move on. Now, Devin, this is the, your first uh, round of shooting with the A7S Mark II. First of all, what do you think about the uh, 5-axis image stabilization on this guy? Uh, I was Honestly, I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, I've always thought that internal stabilization uh, that isn't done inside of the lens and it's done on the sensor level... Uh, I don't know. I, I always thought that like it, it was really good at either staying completely still and making an image that doesn't move, um, but it would fail terribly when you would try to do smooth pans and other things like that. Uh, that's why you know a lot of a lot of the cameras, the older cameras. If you remember the old mini DV cameras and stuff like that, you would turn off stabilization if you were on a tripod or a monopod because the moment you try to pan, like it would fight you pretty hard. The stabilization in the lens, but here. It seemed to like understand that, and it worked very well between moving moving from a still shot into a moving shot and stabilizing the whole thing. So overall, I was pretty impressed with how the uh, that five axis stabilization really worked, um, and I definitely think it was a little bit better than what we saw in the Olympus M five Mark something, right? <laughs> the OMD five uh, Mark MD, two, yeah. Yeah, in that one, because that one, I when I saw a lot of the footage, I wasn't super impressed with the way that it stabilized. But A7S II, I think that Sony's been working on uh, internal stabilization for a while now, and I think they really nailed it on this one. That's just my opinion. Now, the other camera that kind of impressed Devin a little bit, or at least I think so, I'll get Devin's opinion in just a second, <laughs> was I, we both brought a bunch of kit with us, uh, way more kit than we probably needed. And I ended up shooting most of the B-roll for NAB on my Panasonic LX100, and we had two GH4s sitting there that we could have used, but that was the camera I went for. Now, Devin, you did some of the editing on this footage as well as uh, uh, messed around with the LX100. What do you think about it as a B-cam? Uh, in this in this situation, uh, I think it's really an excellent likes to say this situation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because there's times where I go, no, I wouldn't want to shoot with that. But uh, since we are trying to move so light, I think that our kit really worked out well because uh, that cage that he had that he showed you with the uh, handle on it, it's like that cage is strong enough, the handle's strong enough that we could just keep the monopod attached and carry the entire rig and monopod slash tripod by that handle because we had a light tripod too. We aren't running around some giant Manfrotto thing. So 
keep that in mind. But uh, I think that worked out well. So I could carry the entire rig with one hand if I needed to pick up and move real quick, uh, which can happen sometimes. And then him just having the second camera in his pocket that's super small and convenient, and he can just pull out, turn on, and like the lens cap opens up and he starts shooting. Uh, I was really impressed with it. I mean, it, it's a little disappointing that it's not easy to get audio into that camera. You know, there's some hacks and like physical things. You have you to actually do. drill a hole in it to get the yeah, audio. Yeah, you could drill a hole in it if you really want to put audio. So I'm disappointed that there isn't great audio coming out of that camera, but its image stabilization for me seemed to be spot on. The lens on it is good. And I think just the fact that it is so compact for a rig like this, it's not like it's another rig we have to carry around. It was like you can pull it out of your pocket and hit record. And that was kind of cool to really do that and not have stabilization equipment and everything else to worry about with it. So what do you think think about the 4K image out of it? Oh, I I thought it looked as good as a GH4. I thought it was incredibly sharp and... uh, uh, you know, the noise was about where I expected for a Panasonic at this point. So I don't I feel know. I completely justified in my choice of the LX100 <laughs> now. Yeah, no, really. It's, I, I think that it's a fantastic. I think what works for that camera is not building a rig around it and making it into a big thing. I think what works well for that camera, he added, you know, that small handle. He's shown it on the website before and things like that. I think just adding that and leaving it alone it works as a great camera to grab a couple of shots. Um, I think if you try to start adding a bunch of rigs and other crap to it, you overbuild it and you lose what makes that camera good, uh, which is just the fact that it has a fixed lens on it, and that's okay because all you're going to do is pull out and hit record. So, Yeah, the macro feature is also pretty awesome on this that guy did. as well. That, yeah, I was surprised how well that lens worked in macro mode uh, for being a fixed lens. I think it looked fantastic. Now, one other camera we saw before we move on to the rest of the stuff on the list is the Panasonic GX85. And one of the things that has been confusing basically about the literature on this guy is actually that it says five-axis image stabilization, and then it usually has a caveat that says with lens. Uh, So we asked the rep, and we got to get our hands on this and actually figure out what the heck is going on, what they meant by that. And they said it's sort of a confusing misprint. Turns out the GX85 does have five-axis image stabilization built into the body, and then you can get an extra axis of stabilization from the lens itself if your lens has image stabilization built in. So that's your five-axis image stabilization plus your regular uh, gravity run spinning device Mm -hmm. uh, IS in your lens itself. We messed around with the GX85, and to me, it was very smooth. The five-axis image stabilization was really good, and the camera was almost as tiny as the LX100 that we were shooting on as a B camera. Now, Devin, we had someone there actually with us kind of messing around with the camera and telling us what he thought. Uh, What did you think about the size and price offering? And do you think we'll see that as a key feature in the GH5? Oh, definitely. I I think it's absolutely certain that uh, Panasonic is putting so much into this internal sensor stabilization, uh, which is good because Sony obviously is interested in that too. And I think that it's kind of getting to that point where it's one of those things that mirrorless right now has over the DSLR market. Uh, Because we've talked a bit about Canon rumors about a new 5D and stuff like that. And one of the things that aren't on any rumors for any of the new DSLRs coming out is internal stabilization. Uh, and there's a lot of, I'm sure, reasons for that concerning mirrors and all kinds of stuff. But the, uh, I think this is one thing where like it's it's another selling point for a mirrorless camera for video production as well as just photography. 
because I think it's in a way trying to compensate for uh, you know, stepping into a higher ISO and stuff like that for photography purposes, you can get a more stable image and run a longer shutter speed more easily. So, uh, I think that, yeah, this is going to end up in the GH five for sure. I think you'll have internal image stabilization. Panasonic has said repeatedly that the GH five or the next, they, they haven't announced it, but they say, if we continue the GH line, that the next camera will be a very significant improvement, and it will not just be a small improvement or reiteration Ahem, of the 6K. previous. Six <laughs> K. And and DJ's on his six K train, and and at this point he might not be wrong because they didn't announce it NAB. Because I always said if it's coming out in NAB to buy, then chances are we aren't going to see something crazy like six K. But since it's going to be still a while until something shows up, I think current rumors put it at. Uh, quarter three or quarter four of this year um, that there's time that, uh, yeah, that, that could be possible. I don't know how the codex and the bit rates will work, but it could be possible. So uh, I'm really excited. And I think the GX, uh, the GX 85 could be a really good B camera for that kind of situation. My rumor actually, or my, here's my conspiracy theory, guys. I'm going to lay it on you. <laughs> I was uh, shopping this idea around at NAB and someone's probably already stolen it by now, but I believe that the 1DC or 1DX Mark II, excuse me, uh, is meant to be Canon's 4K offering uh, for the foreseeable future uh, into the end of this year. At that point, once they've sold as many of those as they can possibly get out the door, then around October, November of this year, they'll announce the 5D Mark IV, which will basically have the features from the 1DC uh, and be missing a few extra things. They'll cripple it in some way that is obvious to Canon, but not obvious to everybody else. And then at the same time, to sort of uh, swoop in and steal the sunshine from uh, the 5D Mark IV release, Panasonic will roll in casual Friday style with the GH5 <laughs> and lay that down on the table and be like, bam, 6K image stabilization, all the ISOs, and we are out. And then they'll walk out the door. That's my, that's my theory. I don't know if this mm-hmm. is going to happen or not, but that's what I think is is going on here uh devin i've told this to a number of people reactions what do you think most people thought that sounded like a pretty good good idea Uh, no 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 and i i think that there's definitely some merit to that uh in a way there's part of me that would be disappointed because i'd always hope to get a little bit better low light out of my panasonic and if they jump up a sensor size like that i imagine that will just maintain the status quo which isn't bad you know everyone's always like oh it's not a low light camera and i'm like why don't you film with like a mini dv camera and tell me it's not a low light camera like but people forget how far the technology's gone and how you know that bar has been raised over time uh but uh, if you're right and it's a bigger sensor, I don't think we're going to see better low light performance, but hopefully it won't be any worse in low light than what we currently have on the Panasonic. I'm line. thinking so, they're going to squeeze a 20 megapixel sensor in there, which is probably about the limit as far as pixel count can go. Oh, for in sure. For that size of body and, and uh, image sensor. But I don't know. You can see there's still some ways to to gain ISO out of that sensor, even at 20 megapixel. If you go with the, the BSD style backlit illuminated pixel mm-hmm. sites, you go with the, the uh, reversing of the film, the, the color separation plate back to the back of the unit instead of the front of the unit, uh, you can get more light in that way. Uh, you can also do uh, the thinner tracing on the chip itself. All these options are things and that Sony is what? using in their and sensors. We- we know that Panasonic has that uh, patent on using 
for lack of a better term, because I'm not a scientist or engineer, but a, a prism type of uh, Bayer pattern instead of using yep. kind of colored gels, which those colored gels you're losing, you know, almost, I think, like more than a stop of light in order to understand what color is in that pixel. And by sw- switching over to a prism, it would t- technically remove that. So you're talking about gaining a stop or two of light uh, by switching to that patented technology by uh, Panasonic. Now, Panasonic, besides having the patent for it, hasn't announced using it or developing sensors with that technology yet. But, you know, that there are things that they can do to make those tiny sensors work even better. So I'm excited for it. Now, let's talk about some clones here. This is a weird thing and kind of interesting as well. There's a couple of booths that Devin and I watered by in the more seedy section of the uh, uh, Chinese market and NAB. And we found uh, some stuff that looked really, really similar, if not identical, to uh, name brand companies that were also on the showroom floor in other halls and other sections. Uh, This one right here is pretty interesting to me and a Devon. And this appears to be pretty much the same material and design as the Rokot Softy or Rykot Softy. And this guy is, it feels the same. The texture is the same. The 3D uh, air stopping system on the inside is pretty much identical. And it almost looks like the, this company that we uh, bought these from on the showroom floor is selling the OEM version of uh, the more expensive stuff that's out there. Devin, you got one. I bought one. These were $30. Mm-hmm. Have you tested it out yet? Have you given it a chance? I I haven't done my side-by-side test, but I can confirm that for the most part, it sounds pretty transparent. I need to put it under some real stress testing and some heavy wind. I did hear from a professional field recorder uh, in terms, uh, she actually had tried out the Rykot version, the, the official brand, I guess you could say, of this uh, technology. And uh, she said, no, it didn't block all wind. In some really extreme instances, you can't beat that fur. But uh, for everything else, I think also, too, what, to describe what this product is, is the reason why this exists and why one might use this over a fur cover uh, is because without the fur, you don't have to worry about weather or matting or anything like that. It doesn't make your microphone waterproof, but it itself is waterproof. You can get it soaked. You can get mud on it. It's not going to screw up and like get all matted down and make your mic sound worse. You can squeeze it out, throw it back on your mic, and be ready to rock and roll. So, uh, And you're right. I think this is possibly the OEM manufacturer. Now, they did also, too, have longer versions of this than even Rykot will produce. Uh, and they were some strange shapes. So I don't know if it's really an OEM. I don't know if it's a clone. I don't know if it... I almost it, feel it, like it, they're the ones that uh, came off of the assembly line. That They're like, oh, that one's a little lopsided. Uh, didn't meet our quality assurances. So very well, go ahead very and throw well that could in the be. bucket over there. It, it very well could be, because we've seen that. We That well, is definitely look at very mine, popular. And that's why I suspect it, because mine looks great on this side. But as you turn mm-hmm. it around, right about there, it's got like a weird <laughs> stitching issue in it. Uh, same material. And in fact, uh, right here, I have a full-fledged fuzzy, and this has the same uh, wind-blocking material plus the fuzzy on the outside. A uh, very good uh, unit, the one I normally use when I don't have my blimp with me. Uh, but this guy right here, I think, honestly, I think it's just factory defects that they're selling. So... Uh, 
still very well could I, be. I'm, I'm guessing probably the same quality uh, as the uh, Rykot, but w- way less expensive if you're on a budget. Uh, I've got some links in the show notes. Uh, these are the T100, I believe, that I'm holding up here, and uh, they have some mm-hmm. smaller ones, some longer ones, the T180. They're kind of hard I, to find. I think I got the T160. They are extremely hard to find right now, and we aren't sure why. Uh, we don't know if it's because they don't necessarily have permission to sell it, which could yeah. be an issue on the states. Uh, but that was sort of a shifty transaction buying it on the showroom floor. They're like, uh, "Hey, you got uh, you got cash?" And we're like, oh, "Yeah." <laughs> They're like, "All right, come here." And then they just they go over to the table where they actually have their products. They like pick one off, grab it, and sell it yep. to us right there. Uh, but oh, okay. but what is easy to find on even Amazon is Boya does have the furry version of these. Uh, so. If you're not necessarily in or care about the whole, you know, uh, waterproofness or whether, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. If, if you want the furry kind, I think you can find the Boyas are pretty inexpensive on Amazon already in several sizes. So Yeah, and Micover, which is the, a company I've used for a long time for both my Rode Video mic as well as uh, Furries, makes some excellent mid-priced ones. They're about 60 or 70 bucks for the fuzzy slash wind-protecting innards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both of those, all of those, really good choices. Now, next thing on the show notes here is actually light meters. And Devin and I both kind of drooled over some light meters <laughs> at the show, which is like a, couple of nerds. a little bit weird. Uh, but there were some interesting offerings. And on top of light meters, we also saw some spectrum analyzers uh, that were capable of measuring the CRI and quality and flicker of LED lights. Uh, this one here is from ICANN. It's the CV600. And we've also got a few others linked here in the show notes. I think this is the... Uh, uh, it starts with an S. What's the name of the company? Seikon uh, uh, or something? I think that's how you say it. It's Seikon. Yeah. Seikon uh, makes light meters. They've made them for years, but they also make this pretty beautiful uh, spectrum analyzer that will tell you the light output, the color temperature, the CRI, mm-hmm. and everything else. Uh, the price at first blew us away at how expensive they were until we started actually looking at the price of this particular style of meter. And it turns out $1,400 is somewhat reasonable uh, for a meter that has these capabilities. Uh, Devin, are you going to start using this as a professional tester for uh, LED lights? <laughs> I, I would love to, but right now it's outside of my price point. I would love to just borrow one of these for a weekend so I can like l- like dive into all my lights and record what they're actually doing instead of just working off of white sheets and specs from the manufacturer uh because I'm I could totally nerd out on this stuff like the quality of light and everything else and what you know being able to visually see it like that on a color screen to understand like oh this LED has a lot of green cast and not just by looking through your camera but also looking on the screen and seeing specifically where those shifts are on the magenta and the blues and everywhere else that stuff I would just absolutely love um as well as you know having basic you can accurately measure light output and everything else unfortunately yeah this is how much they cost because more or less this is scientific equipment this is like buying a decent oscilloscope uh you know you oscilloscopes are still expensive because the parts that go into them if you want high resolution and you want really accurate results uh you need really good quality components and that costs money so this is one of those where they cost money because they're quality components um, I'm looking on lensrental.com right now, and it looks like 
You can rent some of the lower price light meters. This is uh, the flagship $300 model that Devin and I also really liked at uh, NAB, and it's $44 for five days. So that part's nice. I would love for lensrentals.com to add another option for this expensive unit. In fact, I was doing sure. the review of that uh, VPAD 150 uh, mm-hmm. earlier this week, and I was like, man, you know, I, I'm looking at the image quality uh, from the light source, and I don't see any casting with my own personal uh, eyes, right. but how accurate is that really? You know, it's, am I really seeing 93 CRI? I, I don't know. Maybe right. I am. Well, Could this be 85 <laughs> and they're just, you know, writing a higher number to make me feel better? Could um, be. Yeah, that that could be too. I can say that between old LEDs and new LEDs, I can definitely usually see a bit of magenta cast. If it's something 85 or lower, I think it's pretty easy for the average person in a side-by-side viewing to see the difference. Yeah. But you're right. Once you get past that, I find it a hard time uh, really distinguishing the quality of light. And it's hard to just use your camera to distinguish that quality of light because each camera has kind of different color technology and color profiles in it. So uh, some cameras may res- respond really strongly to a few frequencies that other cameras don't. And that's one of the reasons why these things are expensive is because they're made so that all across the brand, if you could have two uh, spectrometers from two different companies and they'll both give identical readings because they're both like accurately made. At least that's what you'd hope for. You'd hope that, you know, no matter which brand or what tool you go with, that your accuracy is always there and there's no weird like people throwing in their own color math and everything else. So uh, that's why, yeah, I would love to have one of these and test out a bunch of lights and I'd have a total field day with it. Now, one more thing before we wrap up with a camera that we really liked. Uh, Let's talk about monopods and travel tripods for a second. After using the travel tripod that I've been basically in love with for the last, uh, I would say, five years, the Siri N1004, which is a really nice travel tripod, very solid. Uh, Devin was kind of having a little bit of issues. The legs were starting to come loose and the foam was starting to die on the thing. And I really have abused it. I decided to upgrade to a newer travel tripod. And this is the Mifoto Globetrotter carbon fiber travel tripod. Uh, mine is actually gray. I don't know why the package describes it as green, uh, but it's a few inches shorter than the Siri N uh, 1004. And it's a little bit beefier. It also includes a head in about the same weight package as the Siri, which does not include a head, but it is double the price. Uh, price tag on this guy is $399 versus the Siri, which will set you back around $200. Uh, still, uh, feels really nice, very lightweight, uh, very solid, and it is quite a bit smaller uh, and uh, easier to pack up than my old unit. So, I like this. Devin, you used my travel tripod the whole time we were there. What do you think about travel tripods in general? Because a lot of people try to use those as a video tripod, but obviously you don't have the fluid head or the smooth motion. Do you think you can live with that in a travel situation? Uh, In most cases, no. I'd still bring a small Manfrotto head uh, for doing some hydraulic moves. But uh, in terms of the legs itself, um, 
I think in most cases it's good enough if you're running around with a small DSLR rig like we are. If you had bigger stuff, you're using an FS5 or something like that, then you also got to haul around bigger support equipment. Uh, but that's one of the kind of great parts of DSLR video making is that if you do keep the package small and you keep it light, you can use a lighter support system like this. I would definitely would have appreciated, uh, you know, the carbon fiber on the legs as well as, uh, you know, it being able to fold up and be a little bit smaller too. Uh, but for the most part, I don't know. I, I move the camera too much. I do too many pans and tilts for me to live without having some kind of a fluid head on there. Uh, but, you know, and Manfrotto is not the only company, but there are lots of heads that are very small and you can get pretty decent movement out of if you're trying to be light on your feet. Now, what about so, the image stabilization? I mean, was that allowing you to get more out of your pans and uh, movement in your camera without having oh. to have a fluid head? Oh, for sure. I mean, like that, that's not ideal for me. If I, if I want a pan, a pan has a kind of look to it. And that means I don't want to do a handheld pan. So I consider those to be two different looks. And depending on what you want to shoot, uh, there's a reason to go with one over the other. But you're absolutely right. That internal stabilization with, you know, taking your time and focusing on being smooth, you can actually pull out some really smooth pans out of it. Um, They'll look different than if they are panned on a tripod for sure. But still, I think in terms of like smooth, clean looking video, it accomplishes that job if that's all you want. Devin was actually making fun of me in the hotel room when I needed to get a quick uh, crane style shot. I just held my arms out as far as they would go, <laughs> set the focus at the lowest point, and then started from high to low and, and craned down onto the object. <laughs> and he's like, that's not going to work. And then he looks at the image and post. He's like, dang it, that worked. Good job. <laughs> All right, because uh, because I'm not used to your five axis stabilization. I didn't think it's come this far, but it really has. It's really become impressive. Honestly, I'm I'm a lazy filmmaker. Even before uh, five axis <laughs> image stabilization came about, I handheld all the time uh, on productions and on uh, feature length shoots. I'll just run around with a monopod a lot of the times, or no monopod at all, and just handheld it. And you know, you'll get a little bit of shake sometimes if you're not careful. But if you're aware of your surroundings and and how you're walking and your moves and you kind of practice a little bit in advance uh, the shake is to a minimum and it's not that annoying now with the built-in image stabilization it's to the point where you can't even tell that i'm shaking you know that there's any shake in it a lot of the times yeah and it it does such a good job that uh it saves me a lot of time and effort as opposed to setting up stuff uh, to just you know handheld the shot you don't have to run around with tripods you don't have to run around with big fluid heads and so on so uh, i don't know I maybe I should do it the right way, but until uh, someone makes me, I am not going to. All right, last thing on the list before we get out of here, because Devin's got editing in about uh, twenty-five minutes. Uh, <laughs> the Confinity Terra six K and five K cameras. Now, Devin and I both had hands-on experience with this at NAB. They were kind enough to let us hang out at the booth, show us some test footage from the camera. Actually, uh, have a monitor on the camera, a small HD monitor, and uh, do some uh, zooms and so on. This thing is a $5,000 to $6,000 base price tag unit, and it's the 5K for 5K and 6K for 6K promise. 
Uh, you do have to bulk this up with some extra attachments, including an XLR audio adapter, um, a monitor of some kind, and maybe a battery kit. But even the base model, right out of the chute, is capable of running basically by itself without any extra accessories. There's a 3.5 millimeter jack in order to put audio into this guy. It takes standard SSD drives, which is very refreshing. And of course, the price. Uh, This camera feels a lot like what we were expecting from Red uh, many, many different times and, and did not quite get. Devin, what do you think about the Confinity Terra 6K and 5K cameras? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I, f- I feel like it's too good to be true. Um, you had I'm your hands of... on it. It is definitely true. <laughs> I know, but it's uh, uh, it, it's really fascinating. Uh, you're right. You're right and wrong about bulking it up, and I think that's really the brilliance of this camera is, uh, yes, if you want Wait, to explain. throw batteries on it. Okay, if you want to throw a battery on it and have those XLR inputs, you are going to add an inch to the back of it. Uh, as well as having your SDI outputs. But at the same time, uh, if if you don't have the backpack, I guess you could call it. I don't know what it's technically called. If you don't have that add-on expansion part, it still has HDMI output that you can plug into a monitor to view what you're recording. It'll Absolutely. still have an internal drive. Yep. It still has a 3.5 millimeter jack, which means it can pull in audio from somewhere, whether that's an onboard mic, a wireless lav, or something like that. And while uh, I would probably throw a handle on it, uh, it, to me, that's not too bulky. It's it's maybe a little bit deeper than a 5D, but it's not bigger than a 5D, in my opinion. And so this kind of like, you can do the raw with it. You can crank out high frame rates. If I recall right, the, the 5K has a global shutter option as well. The 5K, that was a really innovative option they added to the 5K version. It has the capability of shooting on either a rolling shutter or a global shutter. So you are limited by dynamic range if you go with the uh, global shutter versus the rolling shutter, and uh, you do lose uh, the high frame rates. But at the same time, right. that is a pretty impressive option and really versatile for a camera that's $5,000. So if you consider you already have a monitor, uh, well, you have several, and you're looking at getting this Q5 now, <laughs> um, but you already have a monitor that you can plug into the HDMI Yes, you do have to work on a power solution, whether you throw some Sony MPs together or something like that to jack in to power it. But then after that, you have about all the connections and everything else you'd have with your normal DSLRs that you shoot with. You just need to add a monitor. That's like the one thing that lacks on the body by itself. And so you compare that to something like the Reds and everything else, you don't get that. It's like you have to buy all this extra stuff to make this little box work. And I love the fact that without anything added... um, the box already has audio and video output taken care of. So it's like the only things you need to add is a monitor, which both of us have, and a lot of video guys will have their own monitor, and you need to do power, which uh, usually I'm running some kind of other power source for my cameras anyways because I demand super long hours. So uh, so for me, I don't know. It's like it, it really seems like this brilliant thing that you can kind of build up and make it a really good run-and-gun camera. Uh, or you can build down and keep it in a really small package. So I'm super excited. I can't wait to see more from it. There's other features in there with wireless and all kinds of stuff too, which may make it even better if you're running it in such a small configuration. Um, But I think for the most part, besides something like internal uh, sensor stabilization or something like that, uh, this thing is really impressive looking. Being able to do ProRes, RAW, I think it also supports uh, DNX HR, 
and I think the raw is the raw their own codec or is that a cinema DNG with like a three to one or two to one compression? I want to say they're using a cinema DNG on this guy, but it it's uh, they're labeling it Kenny Raw, and Kenny they raw. are uh, right. adding something to it in order to make it easier to process and use. Uh, they did tell me that there was I think up to four to one compression on raw, which is pretty nice. Pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, it, when Devin says the size of a DSLR, uh, for those of you watching, <laughs> like he wasn't joking. This is an image right here of it uh, from the side with the Movicam or Movicam uh, uh, handle on the top, and it was, you know, width-wise was roughly the same size as a 5D Mark III, and depth it probably only had about an inch and a half or so of depth more than what you would get out of a 5d mark three and when we talk about accessories i mean this is all you're adding really to get the xlr jacks and which isn't much a battery plate and this also includes sdi outputs and so on this plate only adds a couple of inches and the accessories uh, aren't crazy priced uh talking to the guys at the booth they were expecting the xlr plate to be somewhere in the range of 500 dollars. so you know and, and and consider what that does to the camera is that's like all the io uh, and power systems. Not only does it give you a V-mount option for powering it, uh, but it's also giving you those XLRs. It's giving you more power taps, and it's giving you SDI out as well as I think. Isn't it like a? It's got a Genlock or a time code in as well, yes, or something yes, like that. It does. So it, it's giving you all those pro features you're looking for, which is usually pro batteries, pro audio, and then pro video delivery. Um, and it provides well a syncing. battery source as well. So if you're using your V-Lock batteries, you can output via the side port to, you know, an XLR port of some kind on another device. Uh, the other thing it has in it, or in that package, if you want to uh, go completely in the Confinity camp, is you can get a monitor that's designed specifically for this with mounts, and uh, mm-hmm. you can get the XLR adapter box, and that basically brings you up to a pretty decent DSLR size kit that's capable was, of shooting a ton of, you know, it gives you all format, the features. All uh, the features, yeah. 200 FPS at 2K, 100 FPS at 4K. Yeah, and the 5K like, version, or the 5K <laughs> version with all that stuff will set you back about $6,100 or so. So compare that to what you'd spend uh, right out of the shoot for, say, a FS5 or FS7. I mean, oh, yeah. there's a lot of freaking value here. And then the fact that it uses SSDs as your recording medium. Now, they did tell me right out of the shoot that this is not a low-light monster. Uh, The camera Mm -hmm. starts to break down if you get to ISOs above about 2,000. So if you're trying to shoot low-light, probably uh, not going to be what you need. And I think he said if you switch over to the global shutter option, uh, you lose a little bit of light as well, and it it drops down to about Mm -hmm. 1,600 ISO. And they had footage there at the booth of... uh, of the camera shooting at both 1600 and 2000 and it looked very good i mean it was very respectable yep. the noise was fine grain and very small uh it didn't crawl a lot it didn't look hideous i think uh you'd be fairly comfortable shooting at that higher iso i wouldn't go much past that because he did show me a little bit of the clips uh at uh, 3200 and it was starting to uh, fall apart a little bit especially at uh, yeah. 4k resolution but still man that is really attractive. They are they are doing a really good job with the feature set on this guy. Yeah, it's it's been nothing but impressive. I can't wait to get my hands on one to actually run around and shoot it. 
Uh, and like I've said, I think its brilliance is being able to build it up or build it down, which is something that Red has always advertised, but Red's never had anything this small. So this really makes it, you know, uh, very fascinating. This guy right here just won't leave my lap. This is Hero, my Pomeranian, by the way. Uh, last thing I wanted to mention before we get out of here is actually the uh, Ceremonic guys. We stopped by their booth and talked to them. And one of the complaints I had about their wireless kit, the UW Mic 10, was actually that the receiver mixed the incoming channels, the left and right channels, together uh, before it went out to your camera. And this is sort of frustrating because it gives you no control over the individual channels and in post. Uh, so I mentioned that to them when I first tested out the very original uh, release of the UW Mic 10 system, and they immediately got to work, uh, updated the firmware, and about a month after I mentioned that every unit that's been sold since has firmware version 2.0 or 2.1, which allows for stereo or mono separation of your tracks going out to your camera. So you can either mix them together if you prefer that or separate them out if you prefer that, which is really good and very nice. Uh, suddenly turning this thing into an ultra sexy uh, two-channel receiver system for under $400. Well, did did you hear what Sony just came out with? Yeah, okay, so <laughs> Sony came Sony out... Sony just... Oh, go ahead, Late Devin. to the game. Sony's late to the game. They finally came out with a dual receiver for their UWP... UWP. Yeah, UWP system. So if you think about it, Ceremonic was kind of the first to have that small of a UHF system with a dual receiver. I know we've seen other ones from Asden and everything else, but they've all been rather large bricks for their dual receiver systems. And so um, really impressive uh, stuff by Ceremonic. And obviously Sony sees that there's money there too, so they're developing their own. Yeah, and in fact, uh, while we were there, a couple of guys were shooting on uh, a Sony UWP systems, and they're like, Oh, are you making fun of Sony with that fake label on there? I'm like, no, this is this is just looks really it's a real company to the <laughs> UWP. Uh, this is the dual channel receiver right here, and you can see how small this is. It's roughly the size of a, a, a Sennheiser G2 unit. It's really really tiny um that uwp dual receiver that devin was talking about the price tag on that's going to be a thousand dollars and yeah it's uh that's only for the receiver that's not for uh any of the transmitters so you're still going to have to spend another uh six hundred dollars if you want to use those transmitters and then on top of that uh it did have one weird goofy feature was a microphone input uh, that would mix into one of the channels uh, at the device itself. So if you wanted to run a lav mic into your receiver, you could technically get three channels of audio out of that and into your camera. So really weird, uh, very expensive. Uh, and then on the other side, you have companies like Ceremonic offering up this awesome uh, dual channel receiver now that they've fixed that. At such a one. low price. I, yeah, Man, I can't believe how nuts. inexpensive that is. Uh, two forty nine, I think, for the base receiver transmitter kit, and then an extra one hundred and twenty dollars or so for another receiver or another transmitter to go with the receiver. It's, I mean, if you need a wireless uh, lav solution, that's pretty much a no brainer in my opinion. Absolutely. And Devin, you you used it the whole show. What did you think of the audio quality? Uh, I. I think it worked just as good as the G2. Uh, I, it was kind of interesting running with both. I thought that, you know, maybe we'd see some dropouts happen or something like that, because after all, it's an inexpensive UHF system. But I was super impressed, even on the busy show floor with lots of, lots of UHF traffic flying around. 
uh, we didn't have any issues, not any that, you know, the G2s would have failed in the same situation. So because uh, we ran both simultaneously on both of us, and I never had one dropout between either system. So right now I haven't seen a failing point on it. So I consider it as good as a G2 system for half the price. All right, guys. Well, I think it's about time to get out of here. Uh, Devin, do you have anything else before we uh, wrap up the show? Uh no, send us send us any questions you have about the show because there's probably still more that we could talk about uh, that we see because we did see a lot. There's a ton of uh, tiny little lighting solutions that I have on the way. You know that Aladdin <laughs> we saw? I've, yeah. Uh, I've got one of those coming. And I've also got that <laughs> tiny ICANN, the little baby light that had its own battery internally. Uh, one of those is going to be showing up on my doorstep soon. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, can't uh, wait to see that. Yeah, well, great. Now I'm gonna have a bunch of pocket lights. All right, guys. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. You can find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere audio podcasts are distributed. You can also watch it live on YouTube when we go live on Sundays and Fridays, usually early in the morning, uh, Pacific Standard Time. Probably, I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know what time we go live off, honestly. But thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Make sure you review, like, and subscribe, and tell your friends about it because. The more, the merrier. And leave your questions in the YouTube comments because that helps us determine the direction of the show. We will see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob.